Hey listeners, this is Loam editor Kailea Frederick. Thanks for tuning into Loam Listen with Emilio Freeman. To continue supporting us and showing up as an independent publishing and media company, we are asking for your support. If you enjoy our audio or publishing offerings, please consider visiting our Patreon where you can become a Loam member. For as little as $4 a month, you will receive a monthly curated missive that includes early access to all our publications and products, along with first calls for submissions and other small gifts. Find us at patreon.com slash loamlove. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi there. I'm Amiria Freeman, and you're listening to Loam Listen, your home for playful, juicy conversations on how we can reimagine the ways we live and relate to each other to survive and thrive within and beyond this moment. Every episode, join me and heartful, spirit-forward guests to learn how we can create the loamy soil from which new worlds can bloom. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Melissa Pintor Carnegie. Melissa, she, they, is a Black and Latinx Austin-based sexuality educator and licensed social worker who founded Sex Positive Families on the belief that all children deserve holistic, comprehensive, and shame-free sexuality education so they can live informed, empowered, and safer lives. Melissa provides puberty workshops for families and educational content for parents on topics of talking to kids across stages about pleasure, consent, and online porn. Melissa is a sex-positive parent to three young people ages 21, 11, and 7. They are the constant inspiration for the work. In continuation of Loam Listen's exploration of birth, Melissa and I chat about an essential tool our young people need, the birthing of new and courageous narratives around sex, climate change, race, and other topics that will help emerging adults give voice and shape to bolder, more affirming worlds. If our present reality is a result of someone else's narrative and imagination, we'll need news stories to serve as compasses to alternatives and possibilities on the horizon. So let's dive in with Melissa. Oh my God, Melissa, welcome to Loam. Listen, how are you? Thank you, I'm doing really well and I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, and just for the benefit of the audience, I was just praising Melissa for having like the most like fierce hair situation right now. It's so laid. So thank you for that moment. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And like I shared with you and maybe others can relate to this, the pandemic has led to some really interesting hairstyle choices and moments. And so it was so great to receive that feedback because <laughs> I'm just doing my best <laughs> to try to figure out what to do with this until I can get to a proper baba. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to thank you again for being in this space. I have to say just over the past few weeks of sitting with your work and sitting with your words and conversations that you've had in the past, um, I feel like your work in this conversation just feels 
so timely for a couple of reasons. One being, I think through your work, I've been fully leaning into the fact and learning the fact that our young people are just fully autonomous beings. And I say that because I've been thinking about how it must be to be a young person right now, just absorbing the state of the world. I'm specifically thinking about what must it feel like to be a young person watching like the Capitol here in the US be stormed. And I have two younger brothers. So after that happened, I was kind of like, surprised, but also kind of like, oh, like, these are two young people who are fully absorbing all of this. And they have their own political consciousness. And they're coming to their own understanding of like the world that we live in. And I can't imagine just how like scary and exciting that must be to sort of absorb all these narratives beyond just like the racial um, sort of like architecture of the US, but also like other like things like sex and climate change. And I can't imagine just like existing like the swirl of like all these ideas, all these stories. Um, but I think through that realization, I've also been really sitting with the fact that um, there's enormous opportunity. I think when it comes to the project of getting free, when it comes to the project of liberation, um, I think I've been really sitting with the fact through your work, so thank you, that we can't get free until our young people get free. They're exhibiting what we're passing down to them, inheriting everything. And I think it's really incumbent on us as caring adults really think through, okay, if we want a bolder, more courageous, imaginative, richer, freer world, we really have to pass down certain narratives that do all of that to our young people. So and I think your work speaks to all of that. So I'm so excited to sit with you and chat through this a little bit more. Thank you. That was a very thoughtful way to, to communicate all of that. And I think, and I'm excited. I'm excited to dive into this because yes, I, I live with young people um, every day and, and throughout all of this uh, that we experienced in 2020 for sure. And so yes, any caregivers or caring adults that are out here that are living every day with young people who are having their reactions to what's happening and and you know we're having to figure out how we feel from moment to moment and then also receiving you know that that energy and the impact that all of this is having on a young person as well it definitely for families and communities uh, has created challenges and I love how you're framing it as opportunities because there are so many conversations that can be had and even in the quiet moments that we can just be with our young people and uh, and, and, and really allow them to be able to to share and express and process uh, there's so much healing potential throughout all of that and I think prior to the pandemic, many of us may have found ourselves in kind of a hamster wheel, like living life, just like, you know, we're, we're striving for this or showing up for that thing that we had to go do or the appointment, go, 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 especially as families. So lots of opportunities have come up in what for many of us has been a call to have to slow down um, and uh, have less distractions amid very tough times. No, and I love the idea of healing opportunities, and I'm hoping that'll be a theme throughout this conversation. But before we dive in, I want to start with some level setting. So first and foremost, in your own words, who are you and what do you do? 
So I am Melissa Pintor Carnegie, and my pronouns are she or they. I am a non-binary um, Black, Latinx, specifically Puerto Rican and uh, Mexican person that lives in Austin, Texas. And all of those, uh, those specific identities absolutely all play a role in my voice and in my work and in my life and in how I parent and in um, my path to get to, to where I am. I, in terms of career, I am a sexuality educator now. That path was um, informed by being a social worker. So I have been in the field of sexual health for um, almost uh, 15 years, and I've done a lot of uh, different things at like nonprofit state government levels that all relate to sexual health. I did HIV and STI related prevention and case management and education work for the bulk of it before really fully transitioning into sex ed and getting to teach young people in classroom settings and then now really working with family systems uh, to to teach you know these these messages around uh, sex positivity and liberation and raising sexually healthy children but a lot of aside from that career uh, and education path, my most important work has been as a parent and getting a chance to raise young people. I have a 21-year-old, I have an 11-year-old and a seven-year-old bonus son. And they truly inform the work that I do. They are the reason I am who I am in so many respects. I learn so much from them. And so my lens as an educator, as a creative, is informed by all of these elements, you know, of who I am and, and my lived experiences. So much more than anything I may have ever and may ever learn from a book or from the web, from the internet, you know, it's very much my own lived experiences and just being in the trenches of parenting and trying to do this in a very different way than I experienced growing up. No, and thank you for sort of embedding what you do in this larger constellation of who you are. Um, I'm currently based in DC, and it's so DC culture to sort of just be very one-dimensional about like who you are and what you do. So I'm so excited that um, you're actively always thinking about how the personal, what you do, are always in conversation. And I want to dive a little bit more into your work. And I know you're the founder of, um, I don't know how you would describe it, but Sex Positive Families. I want to say it's a platform, but it feels like so much more. It's so many things. So can you dive a little bit more into what Sex Positive Families is? And also just for folks out there who may not be as familiar with the term sexual health, what do you mean when you say that? Because it's far much um, broad than just thinking about um, intercourse, but you're also thinking about like intimacy and how to be in relationships and so many other things I don't think we really think about when we hear that term. So that's a two-parter for you, but sex positive families and then defining sexual health. Okay. Well, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with the sexual health because it leads into sex positive families and really what's at the heart of it and why it has to exist. Um, and that's because sexual health as a, as a construct is very frequently misunderstood and 
we as a society are undereducated when it comes to learning about our bodies and learning about our bodies and our identities in relation to the world around us, in relation to relationship with others, and we're underprepared. Um, we get taught about so many other things, right? Math and science of everything else besides humans for, you know, per se in terms of sexual health. Um, but it's more than sex. It is very much about how we are existing in relation to our identities, in relation to our bodies, in relation to our mental health, our physical health. Uh, reproductive health and wellness, and it is very much influenced by our access or lack of to things that can help to stabilize or balance these elements. And so there are many, many, many factors. And so that's one of the things I'm often helping to uh, like debunk for people because society sexualizes and eroticizes sex and sexual health and it and it detaches us from this concept that there's wellness to be had within our sexual selves and within our sexualities and within our identities um and there we all we know many of us know why you know there, there's that detachment because if truly we know how powerful we really are and we're made to be and, and we innately are uh, we could overthrow this whole thing <laughs> so it's to the benefit unfortunately of systems to to marginalize to oppress to keep us unaware and uneducated about our sexualities and our sexual health and um, so that leads into sex positive families and why it was created. It is an education platform. It is um, an organization. It is a uh, create, and for me, it's a creative outlet in terms of coming up with many different ways that I can help share and unpack the messages around these constructs that relate to sexual health and sexuality and allow healing possibilities through them uh, that again so many of us that's been disrupted for so many of us and it does start in childhood and uh, sexuality is with us from our, when we're first created all the way till our last breath and that is a miss that's something that's often misunderstood is that sexuality or sexual health or sex all those things are put into like oh you know when hormones and puberty or when young people are horny you know or when an adult wants to to have sex or you know and it's way more than that so through sex positive families i get the um, amazing opportunity to be able to bring sex positive education to families and to help them be able to create healthier possibilities, safer, more satisfying possibilities for their next generation. And through that, they find healing for themselves. Um, and so I do puberty workshops is one outlet that I do that. I do family style workshops. So it brings whole families together to learn about bodies and how, they're, how they change. And we use a gender inclusive approach. We are talking about things like masturbation and their access and rights to pleasure. And we're talking about consent and we're talking uh, and we're showing bodies in, in many diverse forms and genitals and, and uh, many of the things that 
we didn't get, many of us had no to horrible sex ed. <laughs> so it becomes hard for adults to figure out how to have these conversations with young people and how to create these possibilities when it wasn't even done for them. And so that's also what I do is a lot of parent education. I do parent coaching uh, because it does start in homes. Raising sexually healthy young people and sex education all start in homes. We can do our best and create some pretty cool containers and school systems, but it's tremendously lacking and there are way too many gaps, especially you know across the United States. And so I help parents, caring adults, youth uh, and family serving professionals see the opportunities that exist every day and at every age and stage. Thank you for that. And I wish people could see me. I'm like on my end, like fiercely jotting down notes because I think just that breakdown just offered us so much. But I want to start here. And you brought up the idea of your work really trying to enter the space of overthrowing these really toxic systems that really, at the end of the day, they don't benefit any of us. And I think this is why I'm so excited about this conversation, because for me, your work really boils down a lot to this idea of creating new narratives specifically around sex. And I think the idea of narrativizing or re-narrativizing um, can be oversimplified and just sort of like, oh, you're just coming up with new messaging and new ways of explaining things. But I think when we frame it in terms of this new narrative has the potential to overthrow a system, to offer people healing, I think that's when you realize that building new narratives can be a pathway to building new worlds. And within that, that's so potent and so absolutely powerful. So I just want to thank you for doing that work. And I really want to explore that idea so much more heavily. And I also want to elevate that. I love the idea that you're mentioning and that you're prioritizing this work happening at home. Um, so this episode will be a part of a new season of Loneless and really elevating the idea of birth and really thinking about birth in all different aspects. Um, but the prior season really prioritized home. And it was inspired by a really great Bell Hooks quote where she talks about essentially home being instructive because what you learn at home models for you what the outside world can be. Within your little bubble, you're creating a microcosm that can literally have reverberations out into the broader world. So as you're parenting young folks and creating like a model for what the world can be, especially when it comes to sexual autonomy and consent and better intimacy, um, my mind is just like glowing. I'm kind of like, that's so powerful when those young people go off into the world and inherit the tools to really be the architects of changing the way that we live and relate to each other. All of these things just flow into each other so beautifully and it's just such powerful work. So thank you again. Um, but I want to break down the idea of narratives a little bit more and I'm really curious for you, what were some of those narratives around sex that you were growing up with that you later had to unlearn and how did you unlearn them? Like, what was that process sort of thinking through? Oh, these were kind of messed up ideals that like I internalize. Um, how did you get to that point of self-awareness and then like start that process of, again, leaning into curiosity to figure out 
what is beyond this? What are those moments of like possibility, potentiality that I can invest myself into? Mm, Good question. So, so many, like it would be a whole season, right? In terms of all of the harmful, toxic, not helpful narratives. I grew up in Texas and so I did not have sex education that I have any recollection of. And then I grew up in a home that was influenced by Catholicism. Uh, I grew up also my, you know, Black and Puerto Rican, Mexican, all kind of cultures that came in there. And there's can tend to be a lot of silence when it comes to sex and sexuality and things that relate to sex. And so that is a huge, that is a big thing that had an impact was just the silence around issues related to bodies and sex and sexuality. Uh, it, for me, it led to me being really unsure, really insecure, really curious, and without any affirming outlets. And uh, so I would sneak around, you know, to try to find information about these things. I remember having an Encyclopedia Britannica set. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm 40, so for context, um, we had an Encyclopedia Britannica set at home. And that was one access point, you know, looking through the anatomy section of the books. (laughs) Uh, And of course, that's going to be super limiting. It definitely isn't going to have anyone that looks like, you know, me or or any of my family, you know, it's going to be white people. And and then um, also at the time, this was pre-internet. So HBO Real Sex was definitely a thing. And that was like the porn hub of today. And so I would sneak around and watch episodes of this show. And that, of course, wasn't for young people's education purposes. It wasn't created for that. It was created definitely for adults. And the more sexualized and eroticized, you know, elements around sex. Uh, I knew that I, it wasn't something I was supposed to be watching. So again, that veil of secrecy and sneaking around to see it. And um, I didn't, I, I have no recollection of being taught about menstruation or about my body, you know, from within my home system. I had a younger sister who actually had her period before I did. So it, that was kind of how I learned was through like my sister and a cousin, you know? So for me becoming, stepping then into my own self and my adult self, and certainly as a parent, I didn't have examples of how to be a sexually healthy person, how to have openness around these topics. I, wanted to do differently, you know, when it came to my young people, because I saw the impacts of what that could be. I did end up having sex. Um, I think it was about, I think I was 16 or, or 17. And I didn't have any real understanding of what I was doing. I just felt a desire for connection. And because I had seen things represented on screen related to sex, 
it was like, again, trying to perform as opposed to really understanding what I was doing or that I had any right to or understanding of how to gain pleasure from the experience. My, myself being a person with a vulva, I had no idea really like how do you make pleasure happen in that scenario? You see people like, oh, uh, you know, doing all of these noises, these performances. And so you, you just mimic that, right? And this is very much what we're seeing in present day with young people and porn, you know, is that if this is their, their sex education, then it can be, it sends very mixed messages and can be very performative and can lead you to second guess. Is there something wrong, you know, with your body because it doesn't look the way that it's represented on the screen? And so I knew, again, that I needed to create healthier opportunities. I needed to create more openness. So I definitely was drawn as an adult to, um, I was always drawn to the social sciences. And so I, I, I would say that through a lot of reading, through kind of education, collegiate level education, also community you know, being able to find people that you can talk to about these questions and these curiosities. Um, all of these things contributed to me being able to learn some of those things that I wasn't going to get taught at home or wasn't going to be allowed to talk about at home. And then parenting is a big old experiment. And so then, you know, when you get put into the position of a parent where you're mentoring and leading and guiding another human throughout the, the life, you get to kind of see right away, you get triggered by things, you know, unexpectedly, things that maybe you experienced at a young, at a certain age, you know, as they reach different ages. And so one thing for me, when it came to my daughter, when she was younger, uh, I, I definitely masturbated at a young age. Um, and when I say young, I just mean there's not, it's not, um, you know, masturbation happens in utero. So it's not a matter of like what's, what's good or bad or anything, but just to give context, uh, I was doing that and I didn't, I, no one ever told me like that there was right or wrong or anything, but I just picked up that this isn't something that I should be doing, you know, and I knew that I wanted my daughter to, to understand differently and to have an understanding of her right to her own body and to get to know her own body. So one of the things that I was able to do differently for her and then and for my other children now is talk about it, you know, is create some normalization of the fact that your body is going to feel good in many different places, you know, your, your, your skin is a, is a big sensory organ and your body is yours to be able to do what you desire and wish with it. And that it's important that you understand what feels good to you first before you invite someone else to have pleasure with you, with your body. Uh, and that was something I didn't know. No one ever named that or normalized that for me. So I did spend many years, as many people with vulvas can, and, and, and people that identify as women in this world can, where you rely, you allow someone else, a, a, part, a sex partner, someone else to try to tell you what feels good. Um, and that was something I was intent on 
breaking that cycle with my daughter. And I have been successful in being able to do that. And, and that is very much just about opening up the conversations and not leaving anything up to guessing or risky experimentation. And, uh, and I'm able to do that now. You know, I've, my other two children have penises. They identify at this time as boys. And it's important that they understand the uh, body of people that have uteruses and what they, how powerful those bodies are, just as their bodies are powerful. And so the other thing that I get to do now in, in my position is talk about menstruation and make sure they know what that is and that they know how amazing and powerful it, it is, as opposed to thinking it's gross or bad or weird, uh, or that they, because they aren't going to menstruate, that they aren't allowed to know what that means or what's going on. So just a few examples. Again, it could be a whole season of these things. But I would say that as a parent, as a caregiver, you get put in that unique and, and, and uh, amazing position of being able to create healthier opportunities for a new generation. And I take it seriously. <laughs> oh, gosh. Again. Just thank you for all of that. And most importantly, thank you for your vulnerability. I think just you talking about your own story, I'm like reflecting on my own experiences and especially being like a black queer person um, who like, I don't really feel like a he completely or a them completely. I'm like somewhere in the middle. I just remember growing up, especially like in high school, oh God. And just like how sex ed was just fully a place where I was raised and where I wasn't being represented and I had no sense of myself in relation to sexuality and when I did look beyond sort of like the American public educational system um, my representation was always in terms of you know um, sickness and diseases and intimacy being something that is very linked to um, things and potential outcomes that made it very scarce. I remember reading a lot of poetry from like black queer writers, especially um, Essex Hemphill. And he has like this amazing poem where he says something along the lines of, you know, um, he's talking about him like kissing another black man. And he's like, within this kiss, there's like, you know, danger and the potential for our mutual undoing and that's so beautiful to me as an adult but back then as like a baby yeah. queer I was like that's really scary yeah. oh my you God. especially when you're sort of growing up in this American pop culture landscape of you know your white straight cis peers like having such beautiful exploratory um just like representations of going to the prom and dating and having first kisses and yeah. so sitcom scenarios dedicated to normalizing that experience so um again thank you for the work that you do because it is providing um again just like space for so many of us all of us to really be held to really um i love your phrasing um about a right to understanding and i think through your work and through the work of others we're really allowing that right to understanding to be way more accessible. And I also want to elevate really quickly this idea of silence. I think you brought that up a couple of times and I'm thinking again about my own personal experiences. And I'm from a 
Southern black household. My family's from South Carolina. And I remember like growing up, just like hearing so many stories about women, I especially my family, especially um, having abortions and that was shrouded in like secrecy and disdain and a lot of shame. And I just think about so much using that as a case study, just how stifling and harmful and toxic cultures of silence are. And this whole conversation is about narratives. And I'm thinking so much now about how critical it is to break that silence and to have tools for breaking silences around things that we dare not name. Um, And I want to use that as like a pivot to thinking about functional tools. So all of your work is, again, dedicated, like you said, to providing any of us who are adults who um, intersect with young people, the tools to do that work are breaking down those sciences to, again, making the right to understand accessible. I love that phrase. I'm going to keep using it beyond this conversation. (laughs) I'm making it completely absorbing it. And I would love for you to walk us through just what are those general tips that you offer folks who want to do that work? And I think that this question is really resonant because I think the tips that you're about to offer could go beyond sex, Mm -hmm. but could go to conversations around what are the best ways to break sciences around like race and having that difficult conversation? Or um, a lot of our listeners are really concerned about our climate crisis. How do we translate those tips and those tools into um, having those sorts of dialogues with young people in our lives? What are like your general tidbits and suite of ways of approaching these conversations mm. that can be so tough? Yeah. So number one, I think that's in- very important is to assess and look within and uh, with some self-awareness kind of, I think it's important because we all hold different identities and we all hold different places in this world. And, And again, our worlds are all very unique, whether it's within our you know own homes whether it's within our communities within our you know friend circles within broader workplace settings within political community you know there are so many layers and so i think it's important that individually we look at where we stand on the the issue that you know we're we're wanting to talk with or open up or illuminate space for with another person particularly a young person because we're going to bring whether we are trying to or not we're going to bring our own values our own assumptions our own lived experiences our own um, opinions our own triggers our own traumas all those things we bring with us to these conversations and being able to to take a look at what those have looked like for us first can give us an understanding of possibly what is influencing and speaking to like our why you know like why does this feel really important to us right now or maybe why does it not you know why is is this uh this certain value or this certain issue resonating or is not and then um and then, then you know, listening. So listening is a huge piece too, um, especially in talking with young people. Um, if we are honoring and respecting that young people are whole and separate and autonomous human beings, they're we're just in different stages of life. Is 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 the thing, right? 
then they hold a lot of knowledge. They, and the younger that they are, many times the more closer they are to their instincts and their knowing, we were there once too. And we have many times some years and some lived experiences that often have either separated us from that, you know? And so there's such value in, in opening up conversations with young people at all kinds of ages, right? It's, and, and this is part of what I do so hard, work so hard to try to debunk is that, you know, these are not conversations that you wait until you're like staring at a teenager, you know, and say, oh, because they wouldn't have been able to grasp or understand it before. And that's so not true. We are sending messages about sex, about the climate, right? About politics, about bodies, about all of these things, about race. We're always talking about it. We may not be saying things directly correlated, but the everyday decisions that we make, um, how we navigate the world, who we associate with and who we don't at any given time, all of that can send messages. And our young people are constantly figuring out how to survive in their world and in their relational dynamics. And so they've picked up on the messages that we're sending and that we're putting out there. And so it's important that we create space that allows them to um, feel safe and brave enough to be able to share with us and that we consider what kind of home culture are we creating that allow people to be their most authentic selves, that allow people to be brave, that allow people to be curious, and that there isn't a hierarchy, ideally, you know, and like, I'm the adult, they're the child, you know, and that there's this inequitable power dynamic. Many of us may have grown up in that and generationally, you know, grew up in those power dynamics. And, and again, it can contribute to young people feeling not worthy, um, as if their voice doesn't matter, as if their ideas don't matter, and they have like the best ideas. <laughs> so we, we have to, to create space where young people know and can trust their voice and their position because they're, they're, they're very powerful, you know? Um, so yeah, so I'd say two, two things of many, you know, is, is getting clear about our own identities and our own positioning and our own values and our why behind, behind the, the topic and then making sure that we're creating space for listening and, uh, and then through that is learning, right? And so we can learn from and with our young people. It is not about knowing all the answers. It's not about, you know, being a subject matter expert on the thing before you open up dialogue with a young person or before you receive a question, a curiosity that a young person has. You can always say, that's a really great question. I'm so glad you felt safe to ask. I don't know let's look that up together. Or I never thought about that. Um, I always tell adults that if a young person is coming to you with a curiosity, that's feedback. That you, there's, there's something about that, about you and that dynamic that you have where they felt safe enough to do that. If those questions stop, and certainly over time, that also can be feedback. <laughs> that there may have been something, some signal sent along the way, some, some 
some adults may be like, well, you know, I just don't think that they, that they are thinking about this, you know, and especially if they've got like 13 or 14 or 15 year old, they're like, yeah, they, they just don't seem to care or don't seem to be curious about that. It's like, <laughs> I, this is where we'll, we'll, and that's where I help, you know, unpack with them. Let's, let's kind of take a look at like what your home culture looks like or what your own thoughts, you know, or, or beliefs are, because chances are they may know that it's not fully safe um, or that there may be consequences if they do ask you. They're, they're curious, they just may be taking their curiosities elsewhere or their conversations or their ideas or their, their selves elsewhere to a more affirming space or a space that won't judge them. That was so great. And I think the reminder that our young people are autonomous is something that needs to be said over and over and over and over again. Um, I think sometimes when I think about spaces that I love, these like amazing organizing community outreach spaces, I'm kind of like, why is it just adults? Like, why can't young people be in these spaces too? I Again, I have two younger brothers and um, I'll like see what they're up to and posting on social media. And sometimes I'm really shocked. I'm like, oh my God, you're so young and a baby to me, but you're every day developing and uncovering these really sophisticated ways of knowing and epistemologies that we do not give, at least for me, enough reverence to. So thank you for elevating that. And I want to talk about pleasure. I think that's a part of your work that I'm so fascinated by, how through developing new narratives around sex, you are fully putting pleasure first and using that as its own framework for how to approach this work and how to approach these conversations. And I think that's something that's so resonant within like the broader social justice space right now. I think you and I could both probably talk about pleasure activism by H. Marie Brown all day. Um, and I think that's such a powerful example of what would it look like to make all of this work centered around what feels good. And I want to know more about that. Why is pleasure a tool that you're using? And I would love for you to unpack sort of how sophisticated that tool can be. I think it's a lot more than simply saying, you know, um, we should be talking about things in ways that, you know, are beautiful and enticing and that sort of thing. But I think pleasure is such a sophisticated tool. And yeah, I would love to know sort of how you're walking through that and thinking through that. Yes. So um, pleasure is all around us. It's within us. It is our birthright. And that is challenging for many of us to understand if we didn't grow up with that understanding being modeled for us. Many of us may have grown up watching our parents uh, try to just survive <laughs> and, you know, grinding just to make lives work, you know? And so it's hard, you know, with, within a culture that has benefited from us not being and remaining connected with our bodies and our rights to pleasure and our access to pleasure that isn't something that is bought. It isn't something that is going to just disappear, you know, like it's only for a limited time. Um, it is always with us. 
and it is with us not just through sex or sexual or erotic experiences, it's with us in, in every day, right? In things that we can see or touch or feel or hear or the movement or the, inner, the connections we can share with people, um, experiences that we can have. It's, it's with us in quiet, still moments. It's with us through rest. None of these things are things that we are typically being, like it's not prioritized for us to understand that or to know that. You know, a lot of times when it comes to like creativity, you know, pleasure through art or creativity, we're like taught at a young age many times that, well, only if you're good at that, will you be someone that can have any kind of pleasure related to that. And it is not, there. it's not a competition. It, there's not a hierarchy around it. There's, there's pleasure and joy that's accessible truly, 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 you know, to all of us. But, and depending on our identities and access that we do or don't have, our society will want us to not know that and for it to be the gatekeeper of pleasure and for it to say that oh pleasure is good if you you can have this much like a certain amount of pleasure if you've earned it only after you've done xyz and if you if you pay for it <laughs> they monetize it of course so the radical work is in illuminating the truth, not the lies, and saying that as caregivers, we get to help facilitate a, an ongoing connection to an awareness of pleasure for a young person, for another individual's life. And uh, if, any, you know, if anyone spent time with a baby, an infant, like, you know, pleasure is there and it's, it's all around and it's within, right? And same thing with, you know, toddlers when they're so young and, they're, and they're, there's, there's exploration and there's curiosity, you know, and it's the world around them that may start to inhibit or may start to say, oh, no, that's too much or you're too loud or that's, that's just too much, too much, too much, too much. You know, you can't have this. No, 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 right? And this isn't about saying, and I have lots of content on this, because then you have like the critics that'll be like, so what are you saying? We're just supposed to let, you know, them just do whatever and be whatever. I've got a ton of content on that, so I won't, won't get into all of that, all of that. But it's about, again, recognizing how important and valuable and liberating it is when we can connect with our, and stay, stay connected with our instincts. Because ultimately, that does keep us safer. When we know what feels good to us, and again, this isn't all about sex, when we know what feels good to us and what feels safe to us, we can stay safer. We can set boundaries. We can communicate our limits and we can do them more confidently. And that is what we needed, we needed when we were younger, many of us. And so we can, we can help facilitate that for our young people and create home cultures where consent is respected, where they have a voice and where they get a chance to express, to be expressed and get a chance to say, I really love that. I really like that. 
I don't like that. I don't want any more of that. I need that, right? And that right there is, you know, like it, it, it sounds simple, like, like, you know, you hear it and it sounds simple, but you know, definitely if you're a parent, you know, Ooh, that, that can be pretty challenging, you know, showing up for and allowing that. And again, especially if we grew up seeing children being treated as if they were a burden or being treated as if they were in the way, you know, of adults, <laughs> uh, or if they were a liability, but in what ways does that prepare us for a life of a, a life of adulthood, which is more years typically than you spend being a child? So I help families see the preparatory work. It's not about preventing; it's about preparing. We're we're, we're preparing young people for whole and satisfying and safer lives that they are in the driver's seat of ultimately. So we are mentors, we can be guides, um, not gatekeepers to that. So Melissa, I hate being a water sign, especially a Scorpio sometimes because I'm always on the verge of like tearing up and I just wanna repeat this, pleasure is always with us. Pleasure is always with us and I personally need to hear that. I think so many of us have needed to hear that and remember that. Um, and now in my head, I'm thinking about, I almost feel like our world needs people to like engage in pleasure justice and really remind us that pleasure is not a commodity that just only a few of us have access to, but it's truly an equitable democratic space in the sense that, like we said, it's always within all of us and we all have access to it um so yeah i just think like pleasure just as activists to be like no but you have pleasure you have it you have it you have it how can we break down all of these things to remind us of that fact um i think so many of us grow up without that daily just insistent reminder so thank you for that reminder and you mentioned the critics, and I think I kind of want to end there on the haters a little bit and just give them a shout out. And specifically, I'm thinking about, um, I'm going back to Adrienne Marie Brown and her thoughts on imagination, right? And how we're constantly caught up in a battle of imaginations. You know, we have people like me and you who have a very specific imagining of what the world should be that's constantly in tension with other imaginings. And I'm sure in your work, you're constantly having to think through, how do I respond to people who are kind of like, I see you with these newfangled ideas on like sex and sexuality, but this is my view, this is my perspective, and I don't want it to change. And I want to know for you, how how do you confront that? And I'm specifically thinking about your work and thinking about sex and how do you confront things like, you know, like an, uh, like an adult who wants to like touch your child without consent because there's very different understandings of like what that looks like. Um, how do you engage with people who want to hold on to older narratives that we're actively trying to confront? Mm. Whew, so... We have to get clear. 
that we cannot control others. We can be of influence, but we cannot control. And that includes the young people that we may be raising. We cannot control others. So in terms of having influence, you have to be clear about your why. You have to be clear about why this is so important to you, this particular value. Um, and then again, like knowing where your limits are. And so for me, I can tell pretty quickly, and especially, you know, social media, well-practiced at this point, um, I can tell pretty quickly if someone is just looking to, to argue because, you know, it's fun to some people. I'm not looking to change anyone's mind. The, the proof is in the practice, is in the work. And when I say that, I mean that anyone that follows our work, and we have now, it's over 200,000 uh, on Instagram, folks that are following this work and uh, have stuck with it. And you know, anyone that is knows because they're actively practicing this liberating way of connecting with themselves and connecting with others and in particular young people. And so they get to see those benefits. So I, I share that to say that I'm not here to, to, to fight or argue with naysayers or people that just want to be objectionary. Um, the young people that have the opportunity to feel more open and more confident in being more open and more brave, they get to have a voice. They get to have a, a space within their homes when families open up to these concepts. And the adults who put this into practice see that and they see that really quickly. And it's because they start to let down the walls that they've built and that society has benefited from us building, you know, between that real authentic connection that we can have with young people. And um, so the work really kind of just speaks for itself, ultimately, as, as families connect with it. And uh, when it comes to advice for people that have, like, naysayers in their, in their world that are trying to disrupt this path that they want to take or that they're taking with their young people around sex-positive parenting, you, you have to know your boundaries, you know. And, and, and again, that's within your control. You can, you can facilitate boundaries that help to preserve that work that you're doing, you know? And unfortunately, many of us may have grown up without that voice, without knowing that we can say no, that we can set a boundary, that we can tell someone that they must do this or that, you know, as far as ask permission, or uh, that we can set limits on how much time we're spending with people, how much time we're giving people, you know, to not allow influences into our sphere that could be potentially harmful or contradictory. And so it's a really just taking back our power and, and that power that was always ours and just getting clearer about that access that we have to that and then having to put it to practice. I cannot imagine a better way to end. It's all about just that power that we all have, that we all have our birthright to. And I love the idea of not only just harnessing that power, but getting crystal clear on that power as well. I think that's 
so, so powerful and so potent. Melissa, thank you so much for this conversation. I have taken so much away from it and I'm just like honestly so excited to put it out into the world. This was absolutely beautiful and I always know when a conversation is going to stay with me whenever like I start tearing up throughout the entire dialogue. So just thank you for your warmth and generosity of like wisdom and expertise and just thinking about all the younger generations coming up behind us who are going to benefit from your work. I'm just so absolutely honored to be speaking with you and I'm so just deeply, deeply grateful for the work that you're doing each and every day. Thank you, Mary Ogan. I thank you for facilitating this space and these conversations and uh, and sharing what you've shared, even in this time that we got to spend together. Because I think again, it's that it's that vulnerable authenticity, it's that bravery that we can model, and it gives permission for other people to be brave as well. So thank you. And before we hop off, where can people find you? And is there anything you want to plug? Yeah, so um, sex positive underscore families on Instagram. You can join our very passionate and engaged community of others who are raising sexually healthy children, who are healing through sex positivity and liberating, you know, sexual selves. And um, sexpositivefamilies.com is our website. We have a robust website of resources that can support conversations at every age and stage of development. We even have a parent adult sexual health section that has resources. Um, so again, this work isn't just for parenting people. Um, it's very much healing you know, for us as adults. And I recently published a book that is a bestseller and it's called Sex Positive Talks to Have with Kids, A Guide to Raising Sexually Healthy, Informed, Empowered Young People. And um, you can find that on Amazon or you can find it through our website at sexpositivefamilies.com. And as I mentioned earlier, I do puberty workshops. And so if you have a young person between the ages of eight to 12, um, then we would love to have you join us. We do at least two a month and they're live, they're virtual, they're interactive and they're gender inclusive. And um, yeah. Again, thank you so much. Please go check those resources out. They're absolutely fabulous. I have dove into the book. It was a little startling. I was like, oh my God, I'm so uncomfortable. But that was just like my internal, um, just like stuff, but so, so deeply beautiful and impactful. So thank you. Earlier in the episode, I reference a poem by the iconic Essex Hemphill, which I'm going to share here. The poem is called Now We Think, and it's a powerful snapshot of queer life in a not-so-distant past and, to me, a prayer for birthing new narratives. Now we think, as we fuck, this nut might kill us. There might be a pin-sized hole in the condom, a lethal leak. We stop kissing, tall, dark strangers, sucking mustaches, putting lips, tongues everywhere. We return to pictures, telephones, toys, recent lovers, 
private lives. Now we think, as we fuck, this nut might kill. This kiss could turn to stone. Thank you for listening to Lone Listen. Again, I'm your host, Amiria Freeman. This episode was edited by Isaac Silk with music provided by Isaac Silk. If you liked what you heard, rate this episode, maybe leave a comment, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss more yummy content. Also, share this episode on social media and with someone you love. I'm thinking I'll share this one with my younger brothers. Until next time.